How do you like my bouquet this morning? Nineteen. Nineteen flowers. Our last Sunday, our uh, team that goes to the county jail shared Christ, and 19 people prayed to receive Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. <laughs> Heather, we're going to need another vase because this one is full. That's a nice problem to have. Have you ever wondered what happened to the disciples? Have you ever wondered what happened to them? I mean, we, we hear about them, you know, we, we read about them, they all gathered in the upper room, and they cloven things, you know, and they went out and they taught, but what ever happened to them? Do you know? Do you know where they ended up? Well, 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 let's see, Pastor. Well, Peter, Peter ended up in Rome, right? Yeah, that's right. Peter ended up in Rome. You might recall he went to Rome. There was the prophecy that they would take him when he was old where he did not want to go and they would spread out his arms. And he was crucified in Rome. However, when he got to Rome and, and uh, they were going to crucify him, he says, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Master Jesus Christ. And so they crucified him upside down. Paul, the one out of season, the apostle out of season, was beheaded in Rome. Andrew went to Greece, and he was in a debate there in Greece with Agatus. Agatus tried to convince Andrew to forsake Christianity, and Andrew actually won the debate. And so, not being a good loser... They scourged him, tied him to the cross, because tying him to the cross would make him suffer longer. And so for two days, Andrew hung on a cross and preached to those passing by as he slowly suffocated. James, the son of Zebedee, uh, was killed by the sword. You might recall Herod wanted to make everyone happy, and so he took James and he took him out to take his life. And the guy who who actually told on James and turned him over, was converted by James. And at the last moment said, I, I want to die with him. And so the two of them were beheaded together there in Jerusalem. You might recall also uh, John. Now John, they actually dipped him, according to, to history, in a vat of boiling oil, and he was the only one not to be uh, martyred because he came out unscathed, miraculously. And so he died an old man in exile. Philip became a missionary to Asia. He was in Egypt, city of Heliopolis, and he was scourged, thrown into prison, and crucified. Bartholomew went to a lot of different places, and uh, he ended up in India, and uh, what they did was they beat him and crucified him, and elsewhere it said, no, they didn't crucify him, they skinned him alive and then beheaded him. Thomas preached the gospel in Greece and India, and while in India, they martyred him by running him through with a spear. 
Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia. He was stabbed in the back by a swordsman sent by the king after he criticized the king's morals. James, the son of Alphaeus, was elected to head the church of Jerusalem. He was one of the longest-lived apostles, perhaps succeeded only by John. Uh, at age 94, you would think he would have been um, retired at this time, but no, they beat him, they stoned him, and then they killed him by hitting him in the head with a club. Thaddeus, you may also know him as Judas or Jude, not Iscariot, according to the stories we have, he was crucified in Turkey, and then Simon the Zealot went to England where he was crucified. Wow! Not an easy retirement plan to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, was it? In fact, I wonder how many of them thought of today's words. I wonder of how many of these men thought of Jesus' words, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 10. These men were not surprised by their deaths. In fact, I think most of them were surprised they lived as long as they did. In fact, uh, 2 Timothy 3, Paul writes this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution was the air they breathed, the food they ate. They'd assumed, they assumed, they understood that they would all die as martyrs for the Gospel. Perhaps that's why Jesus did something very unique here. All the other Beatitudes had how many blessings? Look back. How many blessings? Show me your fingers. How many? One. But how many blessings are here? Two. It's a double blessing. A double blessing from God. A double pouring out of His blessing. A double gift. Blessed are. Blessed are they. I think part of this is because all the other Beatitudes are internally motivated. They result in an external action. But this is where an external action is thrust upon the followers of Jesus, demanding something internal. The construction of this verse tells us that the persecution is not going to happen all the time, but it will come. But why? We'll go back to verse 10. What's the first thing we learn? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. We saw a couple weeks ago that righteousness is what's doing good that pleases God. That sets us apart. Especially in a system that is set up to please the world, the flesh, the devil, when we do what is right in the eyes of God, that uh, sets us apart. Now, I want to be careful here. We need to distinguish first between persecution and punishment. 
Persecution is when people persecute us for doing what God wants, and punishment is when we are punished for doing wrong. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 puts it this way. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when they come upon you to test you, as though something strange is happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But catch this, verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Now, isn't that interesting? Meddling is the same as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer. Yet, if any of you suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Listen carefully, church. I am persecuted when I do God's will His way. I will be persecuted for being a follower of Jesus Christ. It is not persecution if I am being self-serving, arrogant, abusive. If I am being a jerk and suffering the consequences for being a jerk in the name of Jesus, it's not persecution. It's just rewards. Persecution for righteousness' sake is daring to live as Jesus has outlined. It's to take up my cross. It's to follow Him. Think about it. Think about how much trouble we will get into if we simply follow the Beatitudes. If I have the idea of being poor in spirit, the world will say, what is wrong with you? Aren't you supposed to be promoting yourself? If I look around and mourn over my sin, it's going to people are going to say you're a killjoy. If I'm meek, people will look and say you're weak. If I do what's right, it's going to drive people crazy. If I'm merciful, people are going to take advantage of me. If I'm pure of heart, it will anger people. If I take on the task of being a peacemaker, I'm going to rile up a lot of people because people don't like peacemakers. We live in a polarized time. If I try to bring peacemaking into the political realm, I will be shot at by both sides. If I address the divides of our society with Christ-centered, gospel-based hope on issues such as poverty, justice, race, gender, sexuality, morality, by bringing God's truth to bear with both passion and compassion on these subjects, I'm going to face anger, resentment, and strife. Let's take racism. Racism, for example. The Bible has much to say on this topic. The hope of the Gospel commands us to bring healing and reconciliation. And we are a country that needs the Gospel of healing and reconciliation in the area of racism. We need to call out sin where sin abounds. It is not courageous for me to tell you that the Nazi teaching on race is wrong. Friends, What the Nazis teach is sin. But that's not courageous for me to say that. You know what was courageous 
one of the first funerals I got to participate in, and I wasn't even a pastor here. You might remember his name. Dooley. I miss Dooley. I wish I could have been his pastor. You know why? Dooley flew B-29 bombers fighting Nazism. That's courage. Standing before you and telling you that Nazism is wrong, that white supremacy is wrong, that's not courage. You know why? Because you agree with me. It's sin. Saying the KKK is wrong and it's evil, that's not courage. Why? Because it is sin. But those who bled and died fighting it and who were victims of it, they had courage. You know, I know you. We have some beautiful people in our congregation that God has blessed us with who don't have my skin color. And I know that if anyone walked through that door and attacked people like our sister Lenice, you would stand up the ladies, you would form a wall around her. Men, you would stand up and say, you're not touching her. You're going to go through me and we're going to show you the door. Because that's the type of people you are. You wouldn't put up with it for one second for racism. And I applaud you for that. But you know what? That's the easy stuff. And Lenise, thank you for letting me borrow you there for a second, sister. I love you. You know what's going to be the hard stuff? Is Buffalo's changing. And if we're going to be the church that God wants us to be, we got to change too. That means we're going to have to learn to say, you know what? I love people who don't look like me more than I love my preferences. More than I love my comforts. More than I love my culture. I'm going to need to learn how to listen. I'm going to need to learn how to, to enter into a heart of reconciliation so that we become a place where everyone flourishes. Where everyone is welcome. Where everyone wants to be here. And that means I may have to give up some things. And that's when we'll have to deal with our true hearts of racism. And that's when it's going to get hard. Now you may say, Greg, does racism really exist? I have a unique perspective. Because you know what? I raised a son of Mexican-American heritage. And he was often, often mistaken as African-American. And can I share with you heart to heart? I'm not going to go into stories. But walking the journey with him, yeah, there's still stuff out there. Yeah, there is. 
And we, as a church, can be part of God's plan to bring the healing hope of the passion and the compassion of the Gospel to bear on this ugly topic of racism. But we're going to be shot at. And our brothers and sisters who don't have my skin color, they're going to be persecuted too. In fact, more than us. I remember what Ephraim Smith said. He was the pastor of Sanctuary uh, Covenant Church. He said, you know what? When we hang out with folks that look like Greg, we lose street cred. And friends, we're going to have to be even more loving and more reconciling and more passionate. Why? Because we're going to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Notice it also says for His name's sake. When we bear the name of Jesus, we will be persecuted. John 15 puts it this way. If the world hates you, you know it has hated Me before it hated you. You were of the world and the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Me, they would also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. So what kind of persecution? Well, this word persecution is literally physical persecution. Its construction is the concept of allowing yourself to be persecuted, a willingness to submit to persecution for the sake of the Gospel. And this has been the common history of Christianity. Tacitus, a Roman historian, writes this of the early Christians. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the animal skins of beasts, they were torn by wild dogs and perished or nailed to the crosses or doomed to the flames and burned to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired and Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle. We were told that they went to their deaths rejoicing. Ignatius, when he was about to die, writes this, nearer the sword than nearer to God, in the company of wild beasts and in company with God. In our recent times, Christians like Dietrich Bonhoeffer suffered and died for his faith in Nazi Germany. Richard Wormbrand, a Jewish believer in Christ, was arrested and tortured for 14 years in Romania. Today, Christians are targeted around the world for their faith. In fact, uh, we have heard that nearly 260,000 a year are dying for their faith. It can be physical. It has been said, though, here in the United States, while our brothers and sisters across the world fear the raised fist, we fear the raised eyebrow. And we're probably not going to, in any time real soon, be attacked physically. It, it could happen. So Jesus adds this. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Notice verbal attacks. It is the insult and destruction of our reputation and our character. And we're in good company when that happens. Remember, Jesus was called a drunkard. And he hung out with sinners. The early church was called cannibals and blood drinkers because of the Lord's Supper. If you look at the historic church they were also accused of being deviants and, and revolutionaries. They were accused of burning down Rome. They were called traitors. All because of reviling. Their reputation was destroyed. In the ancient world, uh, Jewish father was walking with his son and his enemy came towards him. His enemy began spewing out curses. The father pushed the son behind him and kept his body between him and the enemy. Not because the enemy was going to get physically violent, but because he knew the curses would come. Eventually, he grabbed his son and pushed him to the ground and he covered his son with his body so that the curses would bounce off his body rather than touch his son. The belief was that these curses had power. These curses would hurt. These curses would harm. That was how the ancient world saw this. So when Jesus is talking about insults and reviling and destruction of character, he's not saying that it was harmless. You know, friends, we live in a, an age where we seem to be in a culture that loves to destroy people's character. Between the social media phenomena and the nonstop reporting and everything, uh, you may have come across recently uh, the Nashville Statement. If you haven't heard of it and you look, Google it and you look on it online, you'll, you'll hear of 150 conservative evangelicals who came together and they tried to give the church a guidance on the sexual morass and what the church should do during this time. And so they wrote about it. They, they came up with a, a, a guidance, a statement. And uh, many of these men and women have been known for many years as people of compassion and, and people of of high character. And they wrote basically and reaffirmed what the church has taught for the last 2,000 years. They haven't, they haven't veered off course. They haven't taught something brand new or strange. And of course, the world came after them. And if you look it up and if you look from a, a world-based site, they are monsters. Their character has been trashed. If you look at it from those who call themselves progressive Christians, their character has been trashed. They've been called everything from Nazis to trolls to uh, bigots to you name it. They're, they're going to be called. And, and they are trashed because they reaffirmed what the Bible had to say. And they did it 
very compassionately. You see, when we take a stand, we will be trashed. We will be persecuted. And we need to be prepared for that. And it doesn't matter how they have lived. It doesn't matter their history. Why? Because it will happen. So how do we respond? I want to give you three keys to our response when those things happen, when we are attacked. Number one is found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. It says, And they shall receive the kingdom of God heaven for theirs is the kingdom of heaven the first thing is to reign the first thing i want you to do is reign i want you to remember who you are you are children of the king a young lady was was studying and she was looking at the history of the british monarchs and she was looking at the secession and she goes i have to be good i have to be good and, her, her, and then she began to weep. And her, her teacher said, what, what are you crying about? She goes, I just realized I'm the next leader of England. And it was Queen Victoria. And she was next in line. When she realized who she was, it gave her more importance on how she had to live. Friends, you are children of the King. Listen how First Peter writes. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Wow. But because of who you are, you have three choices. You can choose to respond as Satan would respond, return evil for good. You could choose to give a human response, give good for good. Or you can choose to give a response like your father and return good for evil. So that when you are attacked, you could give evil back. But no, be like your father and give good. Because you remembered who you are. Second response, Matthew 5.12. Rejoice. You remember what happened in Acts chapter 5? They dragged the disciples to the side. They dragged them before the leadership. And they said, you've got to stop teaching. You've got to stop preaching. You've got to stop talking about Jesus. And they said, who's it better to follow, God or man? We can't stop. And so they beat him. Sent him out. And this marvelous verse. And they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the gospel. Wow! That they counted worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ. Oh, friends, when suffering comes, do you rejoice? Are you glad? Something When you suffer and when persecution comes, how you respond will be watched. I want you to get this. You will be watched. 
And how you respond is important. If you don't believe me, ask Stan and Philip. For you see, Stan and Philip, you can't, you can't ask them now. You're going to have to ask them in heaven. Stan and Philip were missionaries. They were called to the Yali tribe. The Yali tribe had the strictest religion in the world. If you even questioned it, you were put to death. They had holy sites all around their land, and if a child were to accidentally step on or crawl on one of those holy sites, rather than the whole tribe being cursed, they would simply take the child and throw the child into the raging river and let the child drown. There was no mercy in this religion. And Stan and Phil were called to be missionaries there, and they kept going to this tribe of cannibals. They kept trying to reach them with the gospel, and the tribe decided one day to wipe all of them out. They sent their families, they sent the rest of the missionaries off to be safe, and Stan and Phil went to confront them. Stan engaged them first. He begged them to stop. They began shooting their arrows. The first 24 arrows Stan took out and broke one by one as it hit him. Finally, he was too weak to pull the arrows out of his body, and he just stood there. They counted 50 arrows as he stood there, penetrating his body. But he wouldn't fall. Phil ran and stood next to him, and so they turned their arrows to him, and soon he was filled with 50 arrows as well. But he wouldn't fall either. They died standing up. They wouldn't fall. And they were rejoicing that they would be counted worthy to suffer for Christ. This blew the minds of the Yali warriors. It scared them. They took their bodies, they, they broke them up and hid them around the, the, the forest, but the, the message went out that there was something different in these missionaries and the power of the religion was broken and soon the tribes turned to Jesus Christ, the one that could give them courage and rejoicing in the face of death. Instead of fear. So secondly, rejoice. And our third response is to release love. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So love those who love you. What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Paul writes, but God demonstrated his love for us. The bad news, you, you have rabies. She began to write quickly on a piece of paper. He goes, what are you writing? Your last will and testament? She goes, no, a list of everyone I want to bite. Isn't that our response when we're persecuted? When people drive us up a wall? Who am I going to bite? 
And Jesus says, no. Who are you going to love? How do we respond? Remember who you are. Rejoice. Be glad. And love. Let hit him. Amen. Amen.